Well, we're going to study the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. So let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you will open our eyes to the teaching of the Lord Jesus, that we may not be those that have eyes to see but do not see. We pray that we might see and that we might perceive and that we might respond as you would have us. Please then, bless our thinking and bless our application of what we believe that you will teach us in this study. Father, please be with us, and Lord Jesus, please be with us, because we're here from love for you and of your word. Amen. Well, Matthew 13, this, we're just going to stick with the parable of the sower for the moment, <clears throat> and uh, I think the key to the whole uh, picture here is in verse 2. Uh, sorry, verse 1. Uh, the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside. Well, there is more information about this one day than about any other day in the ministry of Jesus apart from his crucifixion. If you actually put all the, all the gospel records together, that is the, that, that's definitely the situation, that there is more uh, about this one day than any other day. And why is this day so significant? Well, I think it's because there's a turning point here. At the end of chapter 12, which is all the same day, um, he's really been saying to the Jews, look, you are an evil and adulterous generation. This is the end with you people. You simply have got to wait for judgment. You are going to be condemned by the Gentiles. The Queen of the South should rise up in the judgment, etc. with you people and condemn you. You have not repented. And I think the idea is that, look, John the Baptist gave you the opportunity. And you went out and you all listened to him, you loved him, you accepted the message to start with. Uh, many of you were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing your sins, even some of the Pharisees were. And yet he was teaching about me, about Jesus. And now I'm here, you reject me. So therefore, John the Baptist's ministry in that sense had failed to prepare the, the way of the Lord, uh, whereby <clears throat> the, the King of Glory would come over the the way or the road that John had prepared uh, to set up God's kingdom in Zion. That had failed. That's what the Lord is saying. And so now, from this point onwards in Matthew, there is a change. Up until this point, it's been the Sermon on the Mount, very positive, direct teaching, telling people in so many words uh, what the Lord hopes for from them, uh, etc. And it's all been fairly straightforward. And a lot of uh, very positive appeal, etc., to people... And now there's a change. There's a change right over. <coughs> From now on, he starts talking in parables. From now on, he talks about the mysteries of the kingdom. And the theme of so much of what he has to say now in Matthew is of judgment to come uh, upon Israel and about their rejection of him as God's son. And his appeal is from now on to a minority. Now, you've got the parable of the sower, as presented here anyway, as his first parable. And that's why in verse 10, the disciples uh, seem to be shocked when he tells this parable, and they say, what, why are you talking to them in parables? It's as if there's a totally different now way of teaching. There's a different methodology of teaching. He starts talking parables. And they say to him, why, why are you doing this for? And his answer 
going on in verses 11 and 12 is not maybe what a lot of people think it is. He says, I'm talking to them in parables so that they will not understand. Now, that gives the lie completely to the mistaken idea that the Lord's parables were simple stories with obvious meanings. That may be what a parable in the mouth of someone, you know, a worldly uh, human person, that may be. But the Lord's reason uh, and his answer to the question, what, what's the change in style? Why, what's this parable? What do you start talking to them in parables for? His answer is really quite clear. So that they don't understand. That you're blessed because you understand. And he seems to be saying, look, yeah, I'm only going to reveal the meaning of the parables to a few. So the Lord's parables, forgetting about parables generally, but his parables, he says, were designed so that Israel would not understand. You can imagine the disciples overhearing all sorts of wild guesses as to what the parable was about. Um, Jesus says to them, yeah, that's why I'm speaking to them in parables, so that they don't understand. So he's saying, really, look, the dawn of opportunity to Israel as a generation, and he's talked at the end of chapter 12 about this generation, uh, is now closed. And he starts his uh, teaching in parables with this one of the sower, where... The, the simple point is, looking at it from a distance and just getting the basic, obvious uh, outline picture, is that on three types of ground, the seed begins to grow. It always begins, something begins, but then something messes it up. And his point was, you've heard the seed of the gospel from John the Baptist about me, and you started to respond, and then you stopped. Some of you didn't get very far in your response. Others, yeah, you with great joy received it, uh, but you didn't get any further. And I want to suggest that in every case, what went wrong was actually people who came and damaged the seed. Now, of course, it was still the, the fault of the, the types of ground, in that sense, that the, the, uh, the seed didn't grow. But in practice, it was people who are epitomized later on, he calls them the wicked one, who came and stopped this growth of the seed. And that wicked one and those individuals who stopped the growth of the seed was, I suggest, the Jewish religious system, the Jewish religious leaders, because they, in practice, were the ones who stopped the seed growing. Now, as we go through this, we're going to inevitably see a, a lot of... Um, a lot of ideas which are absolutely relevant to, to our situation. Because we have all uh, received the seed, which is the word. And when we say the word, the word is the word about Jesus. The seed, in one sense, is also Jesus. You know, all through the Old Testament, the seed is Jesus. And here the seed is the word about Jesus. Well, the word was made flesh. Uh, in Jesus, you remember, John 1.14. So he was the epitome, the embodiment of God's word to us. And therefore the seed that was sown was specifically about him. The seed that was sown was not the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including the Chronicles genealogies. It was the message about him uh, that was initially preached by John uh, and repeated, of course, by, by the Lord himself. So he goes out of the house, uh, verse 1, and he has uh, <clears throat> spoken at the end of chapter 12, remember it's the same day, 
uh, he has just told them that Israel, the house of Israel, were as if they had been inhabited by a demon that had been cast out. And what does that mean? It means the work of John the Baptist, he cast out the demon. And unfortunately that demon then returns and brings seven others with him, far worse than him. It's all parabolic, of course. Um, and the, the last day of the house is worse than the first. And now Jesus goes, uh, and that speaks uh, of uh, how their rejection of John's message actually, despite initially responding to it, led them to a far worse state uh, than they had been uh, at the beginning. And so Jesus now significantly goes out of that house. And he sits by the seaside, and great multitudes, verse 2, were gathered together unto him. <clears throat> well, this is the Greek word sunago, from where you get sunagos, which is synagogue, as it will be pronounced in English. So great multitudes were synagogued together unto Jesus, whilst he sits in the sea. And the sea uh, is clearly understood as a symbol of the Gentiles. So it's an open-air synagogue with Jesus sitting in the sea of, of the Gentiles. So he's really radically inverting all the Jewish expectations and ideas, religious ideas and conceptions, etc. He's saying that, look, the true synagogue is not sitting there in a building, and I am your rabbi, and the true synagogue is out there on the streets in the open air, uh, involved with the Gentiles. And uh, again, you pause to take a, a lesson there that the structured, organized religion is not typically where the Spirit of Christ dwells. And we may say, yes, well, I'm in a structured, organized uh, church or ecclesia, and the Spirit of Christ is there. And yes, I know what you mean, it is, but ultimately, ultimately, God does not work through structures. God is interested in you because he loves you personally, and the Lord Jesus wants you personally. So no matter how uh, well-functioning a church or organization, Christian organization is, the bottom line is, do we have a personal relationship with the Lord? So then... <clears throat> He spoke, verse 3, many things unto them in parables. This is connecting up with what he's later going to say, that I speak in parables so that they don't understand. It's as if the Lord had certain things he wanted to say, the many things, but he didn't say the many things in so many words now. He put them into parables, verse 11 and 12, so that they wouldn't understand. So, who is the sower? Well, I think this is the obvious question, and you could say that it is left purposefully ambiguous. Of course, straight after this parable, there's the parable of the man who goes and sows wheat in his field, and then his enemy comes and sows weeds. And he, the Lord Jesus, specifically uh, interprets for us that that sower was, was him. So you could say the sower is Jesus. Uh, and yet, the parable really is talking about uh, all of us as the different types of ground who receive the the word sown. Now, when we read that the sower went forth to sow, in verse 3, uh, this idea of going out, going forth to preach, the same Greek word, uh, is quite common. But quite commonly we read of, go, of preachers, I mean we read in the New Testament, of preachers going out 
to, to sow, especially in the, the, the Great Commission, to go out, to go forth into all the world and preach the gospel. So in a sense, the sower is any preacher, and yet the sower is also obviously Jesus. Why the ambiguity? I think because specifically in the work of witness and the work of preaching to others, we are Christ. What is true of him becomes true of us. This is why Paul can say in Acts 13, when he's, he's talking about his own preaching, he can quote uh, passages from Isaiah about Jesus as the servant of the Lord preaching the gospel and say this applies to us. So then you will find in your witnessing of the gospel, you will find a special unity with the Lord because you are him. So true that he has no other hands or face or feet in this world apart from you and me. So we are him in our preaching of the gospel. This is what it means to be in Christ, that all that is true of him becomes true of us if we are baptized into him. So he, he, he says, uh, it says here that the soul went forth, and it's the same word used in verse 1 about Jesus going out of the house. He went forth out of the house, verse 3, the soul went forth to sow. So that's another indication that Jesus has himself in view here. Uh, just a, a little note about going forth. In, uh, in Mark 1.38, Jesus says, I've got to go on, I must be on my way to preach the gospel to other, other cities, because therefore came I forth. And that's the same word. So his going forth was the beginning of his ministry, going forth to, to preach the, the gospel. He came forth, Matthew 2, verse 6, from Bethlehem. Yet in John's Gospel, you, you have the same word used about Jesus uh, coming or going forth from heaven. And there are those who would like to interpret that as supporting a, a personal pre-existence of the Lord. Of course, if that's how they want to read it, then the, it, it's proving too much, because Jesus didn't surely literally come forth out of heaven and physically descend from heaven uh, through, you know, zillions of uh, gigakilometers uh, down through the sky or cosmos or whatever onto this planet. To read that in a literal sense, I, I just, just is nonsense. So John, as he often does, puts sort of physical realities into spiritual terms. And what is recorded in more physical terms in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that John puts in more spiritual language. So Matthew and Mark have Jesus coming forth from Bethlehem to preach the gospel, and John has him coming forth from heaven. Well, what he means is that, yeah, the Jesus who came forth from, from Bethlehem, according to Matthew 2, verse 6, actually came forth from heaven, that is, from God. Uh, so he's saying the, the same thing, but in spiritual language, and that's what, of course, confuses some people who, who misread uh, John, uh, because Often they're just picking up odd verses and haven't read the whole Gospels through and got the, the overall picture. Uh, and they come to this conclusion that Jesus uh, literally, physically came, came out of God in, in heaven. Uh, and that's, that, that's not, the, not the case. So then, some seeds, uh, verse 4, fell by the wayside. Now that's a poor translation. Uh, the idea, the Greek word hodos, it simply means the way, by the road get about side, they fell by the way. And I've said that the purpose of the parable is to show in the first instance how people initially responded to John's message and yet they, uh, they failed to, to go where the word led them. 
and other people damaged uh, their response. Well, the way. John the Baptist had a lot to say about the way, but it's the same word, hodos, used about how he came to prepare the way for the Lord. So yes, some people were so in the way, <clears throat> but uh, Luke 8 verse 5 adds the detail that the seed was trodden down of men, and then the birds came and took it away. So what does it mean to tread down, to tread underfoot? To trample underfoot is to despise, is to condemn, etc. And who were the men who despised and trod underfoot the message of Jesus? In the first instance, it was the Jewish religious leaders. And the birds, well, they, are, they were understood in Judaism as a symbol of the Gentiles. <clears throat> and these unclean birds came and took the, took the seed away and stopped people believing. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus talks to the Jewish religious leaders and says that you have shut up the kingdom of God against men. So clearly these birds and the men who tread the seed underfoot are referring to the Jewish religious leaders. And it was because of that that actually the way, or the wayside as the AV has it, but the way that John was seeking to prepare wasn't prepared because of those men. Now, of course, this is a parable about really types of ground, and the types of ground represent human hearts, um, because later on we, we read that specifically uh, about the, the word uh, coming into uh, the, uh, the mind or, or the heart, um, and that the word goes into uh, a person and they receive it, uh, verse 19, um, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he that receives seed by the wayside. So then, that the, that the heart or the mind is the, the type of ground. And so, the Lord is, is saying here that, yes, some people receive the seed by the wayside, uh, they receive it into their hearts, uh, but then it was trampled underfoot by men, and snatched away from them by, by the birds. Now, there's a, a sort of a moral and ethical problem, I think, uh, in this parable, if we just understand it as meaning that, well, everyone's sort of predestinated to be a certain type of ground. That, well, yeah, I, I received the seed, but you know what, some bird came and took it away. And some bloke came and trod me underfoot, trod the seed underfoot, so I didn't have a chance. That would be a mistake to see it in those terms. It's not like that. Um, because otherwise people have no choice of response at all. And what I want to suggest is that all these types of ground could have responded. They could have responded. Okay? Um, so they didn't have to allow the Jewish religious system to uh, take away the word, to trample it underfoot in their hearts because it's your heart, um, the way, same word, hodos, used by uh, John the Baptist about his work of preparing the way, the way could have been prepared. And of course, the disciples and a few others were the way that was prepared, and they did respond. So then, really, it was not absolutely inevitable that these external factors stopped the growth of God's word. So it's not as if there was no chance of 
ever, ever responding. Verse 5. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And the sun comes up and they're scorched. Because they had no root, uh, they withered away. Well, this word translated stony places, it's the word Petros, basically, which is the word used about Peter. And you know, Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. And uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says that the wise man builds his spiritual house upon a rock. Although building there is difficult, yet he does manage it and he builds his house upon a rock and it stands. And so again, I think that's a hint that growth upon stony places was absolutely possible. And again, why does it fail? Because the sun comes up, which Jesus says is uh, persecution for the sake of the word, and they are burnt. Well, who did the persecution? Well, it was in the first instance, it was from the Jews. It was they who persecuted the, the Christians. In the first instance, that Matthew's talking about, that Jesus is talking about. And incidentally, the idea of the sun coming up, I mean, this is Malachi again in the context of John the Baptist uh, talking about the sun of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. This is the picture of the, the new day of God's kingdom. And yet here it's used about uh, persecution in this life. And I think this is one of many examples of where, in essence, when trial and persecution and difficulty arise in our lives, then that actually is a foretaste of the coming of Jesus. That's why the final outcome, if you like, of the Day of Judgment is not a mystery to us. Because we have all these kind of foretastes of it in this life. Now, he says that uh, when the sun came up, in other words, when persecution arose, it is absolutely to be expected that persecution will arise. But the Sermon on the Mount is very clear about this, that there shall come persecution. It's as if the Lord is, uh, is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and repeating it here, really, that if you're going to follow him, you must accept right at the start, sign on the, on the dotted line, that you expect pretty tough persecution. You expect tribulation. Like Israel went through the baptism in the Red Sea, and pretty well the day they came out of it, oh, we didn't have anything to, to, to drink, no water to drink, no, no food, and so forth. Now, I think often people don't understand that, because they tend to be schooled into Christ, and they get baptized and join, as they see it, a community, uh, which seems a pretty good social community, pretty good social deal, and they like it, etc., and then when something tough happens, oh, God, where are you? That's so unreasonable, God. What do you do that to me for? Look, if you're going to seriously sign up for Jesus, look, this is what it says. Don't bother unless you're really prepared to lose pretty well everything. Because this is what he's teaching here. And here, when the sun came up, when persecution and tribulation arose, then they had problems. And I think that if First of all, we're expecting that tribulation, then it will not come as such a, such a shock to us. Now, the in interpretation that uh, the Lord gives uh, 
as I say, is that um, he, uh, he has no root in himself, but lasts for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises, by and by, or immediately, he is offended. And actually, there's a huge number of people who I know, and probably you know, who are in that category, who are offended, who have been caused to stumble by the fact that they didn't see that God gave them everything they should have got. Now, you know, who are we to expect a cool life from God? You know what? If we're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever in God's kingdom, and the highest possible level of joy just imaginable, with a tailor-made, beautiful future for eternity, literally. I mean, I'm surprised God doesn't cut off our hands, legs, everything, and sit us just in a wheelchair and say, well, you've only got to survive for, you know, 50 years, maybe. What's that compared to eternity? Got a problem? No, no, no contest. The fact that he has always spoiled us by giving us so much more in this world is tragic. You know, the same with Israel. Yeshua and wax fat and kicked. Uh, he gives us all those blessings and what do people do with them? They turn around and just like spoiled children and, and bite the hand that fed them. And yet the Lord is saying very clearly here that these things are going to happen. And it will only offend someone or cause them to stumble if they do not really, um, if they don't really uh, appreciate from the start that this is not what it's all about. It's not all about a social club. It's not all about a smooth cruise in this world. It's actually taking up a cross. It's death now and life to come. Now, you'll see in the interpretation there, um, he says that this person, verse 20, with joy receives the word, uh, but when problems arise because of the word, um, he only lasts for a while and he is offended. So he loses his joy. Well, actually, that's quite a theme uh, of the of the Bible, that if you believe, there is a joy connected with faith. That's why in Hebrews 3, the writer talks about holding the rejoicing of our faith firm unto the end. And he always seems to be implying that if you lose your joy, you've lost your faith. In John 16, 22, the Lord talks uh, again about his joy that he gives us. And he says, and your joy no man takes from you. That it will not end. Now, that's a good uh, method, I think, of self-examination. To what extent do you, do I, have joy in believing? All joy and peace through believing, as Paul puts it to the Romans. Because if we don't, then do we believe? And believe in what? Believe that by his grace I shall be in his kingdom. That his word, his seed of the word of the kingdom, for me is true. Because if it's all a, a case of accepting a few theological truths and uh, to keep coming along to the meeting and showing ourselves vaguely active in the, in the community, well, what joy is that? Joy comes ultimately from our knowledge of his love, from our belief that we shall overcome and we shall live forever, and that quite simply he loves me. And it's as simple as that. So that's a good one for self-examination. Now, the third type of ground, uh, back to <clears throat> verse uh, 7, 
Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Oh, sorry, I would just like to go back, so to verse 6. When the sun was up, uh, they were burnt or scorched, the AV says. This again is the language of John the Baptist, because he gave people a choice of fire or fire. He said that you either get uh, baptized by, by Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with fire, or he will gather you uh, to one side and burn you with unquenchable fire. So Matthew 3, he says, you're either going to be burnt with unquenchable fire if you turn away from him, or he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So it was a, a huge logic there. Be burnt up or be burnt up. Be burnt up for him or be burnt up in condemnation. One way or the other. We have to lose this life. And uh, he says there that these people, well, they were scorched, they were burnt up by the sun of persecution. And I, I think that it's a, it's a really strong logic here. Okay, so there's persecution, there's loss. There's tribulation that arises. You can either be burnt up by that, and yes, will, willfully and joyfully, as uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, uh, suffer the loss of all things. Or you can resist it and turn away from Jesus, and you will be burnt up in figurative fire at the last day. So ultimately, we're going to lose what we think we have. So it's better to lose it for the Lord, rather than have it, as it were, forcibly uh, taken away from us. <coughs> so, back to uh, the, the seed that falls among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked them. Now again, this is not inevitable. This is not inevitable. Because later on, in, uh, in the next parable, which is clearly related to this parable, um, we read that, again, the, uh, the, the weeds and the, the good seed both sprung up. They both grew up. But the difference was that the good seed continued to bear fruit and was uh, ultimately saved. Now, the connection, I think, between the two parables shows for sure that you can be sown among thorns and yet not be choked by the thorns. Because in the next parable, the parable of the weeds, and thorns are just weeds, the good seed continues bearing fruit, despite the fact that it's surrounded by, by weeds that are with their roots grabbing the, the moisture and the nutrients, etc., that should go to, to the wheat. So the point is that it could have succeeded, but it didn't. So who are these thorns? Well, the thorns, I would say, are people who, according to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven sixteen, that talks about thorns. Uh, these are those who don't bring forth fruit, good fruit. So then, thorns are people. And thorns in the Old Testament are very much... Uh, a picture of false teachers within the community of Israel. So again, it is people that stop the, the choke, the, the growth of, of the word in people, the word of Jesus. And Hebrews 6, 8, likewise, talks about thorns. He that bears thorns is rejected. So thorns are people, and yet when you come to the interpretation that Jesus gives in, in verse 22... He says that the thorns are the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word. So these abstract things 
care of this world, deceitfulness of riches. How do they choke the word? They choke the word in that people who are devoted to those things, who are devoted to the deceitfulness of riches and the care of this, this age, that they uh, strangle us. So I think the whole parable is the story of people who maybe uh, embody abstract ideas such as riches and, and, uh, and so forth. The whole parable is a story of those people who influence us and stop the word growing and taking us where it's intended to take us. So the point, I guess, of the, the good ground is that this is the ground that does bring forth fruit. And I want to suggest this, that actually there are only three uh, types of uh, ground spoken of, uh, sorry, three bad types of ground spoken of here, and then there's three good types of ground. The uh, land that brings forth 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Okay? So, I don't think that the good ground is another category. You see, you've got three bad types of ground. You've got the wayside, you've got the uh, on the rock, and you've got the uh, amongst the thorns. And then you've got three good types of ground. You've got the 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And the good ground, I suggest, is the type of ground that, despite it being perhaps stony amongst thorns or by the wayside, the good ground is the ground that, despite all those things, brings forth fruit. Because in each case here, in each case, you've got examples of people who did respond to the seed of the kingdom. Uh, we talked about the wayside, uh, the way, and I said that this is the same word used about how John was to prepare the way and how some people uh, did uh, respond and they did become the good way. And actually, people like Bartimaeus, he's described as sitting by the wayside and he hears the gospel and jumps up and responds. The, the stony places, well, I said that... Uh, we are to build a house on the stone, on the rock. Same word, Petros, just like Peter as a person, uh, and like the, the wise builder in Matthew 7, building on a rock. And then the, the seed that's sown amongst thorns, yes, it, it is possible to bring forth fruit amongst thorns, because the next parable goes and says this, using the same words for how the seed springs up and so forth. So the point is, I think, that the good ground brings forth all this fruit despite all the discouragement around it. Now, that is a great challenge to ourselves personally, because we all, I think, struggle with the idea that my failure, my spiritual failure, is inevitable. That, well, I, I had no choice. The way was set for me because my family, uh, my surrounding culture, where I live, my neighbours, it was all like this, the blokes at work, and so on and so forth. They were like this, and well, poor me. And the power of the soul is saying, despite all that, despite all that, you can respond. That's the point. And also, there are times, of course, when we preach and we, we, we sort of half-heartedly share the gospel with someone thinking, they're never going to respond. I mean, look, the situation is such that they're in a Muslim family that's surrounded by hardcore Muslims or hardcore you know, atheists, worldly people, etc. 
they're not going to respond. Well, this is the point, that God's word is so powerful that they can, if they want. And particularly, I think the, maybe for our generation, the the toughest one is the, the seed that falls among thorns. Because in no other generation, I suggest, has the deceitfulness of riches and the care of this age been so strong. I think the the tendency to worry about possible futures is far greater in our generation than it has ever been. Because we have more knowledge now. We have more knowledge of our own bodies, of all the millions of things that could go wrong with our body, all the billions of things that could go wrong with the financial system. And so people worry. Got a car. There's a load of things that could go wrong with a car. This might go wrong, that might go wrong. With your computer, with the internet, with this, with that, with the other. And so the, the, the temptation to worry about the things, just the things of this age, is much stronger now than it ever has been. Much stronger. And yet, the point is that, from the connection with the, the, the later parable, that the seed does grow amongst the thorns. That in spite of all that, they still grow. It still grows. That's the point. Now, <clears throat> this is a huge encouragement to us. I think one, one reason the Lord gave this parable is that the disciples were starting to get discouraged because they obviously had hoped that Israel generally would respond to the message, and they hadn't. And they had gone to the people who had heard John's message and preaching to them, uh, and yet there was apparently no response. And their master was saying, well, this is an adulterous generation. They had it. This generation's shot, basically, just going to be condemned. That is pretty discouraging for them. So I think the Lord is explaining to them the context of the apparent failure to respond to the gospel. Now, I've said uh, elsewhere or shared the idea elsewhere, that in all the Lord's parables, there is an element of unreality. And that element of unreality is to signpost and signal to us his essential point. But I think the element of unreality here, well, it could be that the sower even bothers sowing on the, the wayside and on the rock, etc., that this sower seems to uh, fold his seed on real bad places. And the point is that we should preach to all people, not just those we reckon are, are good material and likely to respond. Uh, just get the word out there and don't worry about it. Uh, it will be responded to. Um, but I think that the, the major element of unreality is in the good ground. Now, in, in the yields that are given. Now, Joachim Jeremias in his book on the parables, uh, really looked into this. And although it's been criticised, um, I, I think the evidence he presents that these figures are absolutely unreal, uh, I think it has stood the test of time. It's, it's been around uh, quite a while. What he did was to look at records within the Roman Empire, agricultural records that have still survived, uh, talking about yields and uh, particularly in Palestine. And a tenfold yield was seen as very good. And he, he quotes some document that says, oh, there's, uh, th there was a gossip 
that there was 20-fold yield in some place, but of course it could, we, know, we know that's rubbish, the, uh, the record says, basically. So when you talk about 30, 60, and 100-fold yield, people would be like, oh, well, you know, th this is unreal, this is out of this world. And I think the high figures are, of course, purposeful, and there is the point, there's the rub of the uh, parable. And there's also uh, the fact that the, the whole parable ends on this point. In verse 23, the last uh, stress of it is that the, uh, the good ground brings forth all, all these different uh, things, uh, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I think that end stress is typical of the parables as well, but a lot of them end with the point that is being made. So the point that's being made is that the good ground brings forth amazingly. So the Lord is saying, right, all these people fail. Okay, so they fail. They hear the word, they don't respond. Yeah, very discouraging, understand. But look at the response of those who do. One little seed can bring forth up to a hundredfold response. This is huge. It's the same idea of the parable of the mustard seed, that from tiny beginnings, from a guy picking up a, a leaflet off a street or finding it on a train, the guy comes to study the Bible, get baptized, comes to God's kingdom. That look at this, this eternity that is ahead for those of you who have responded. And you could argue that the whole parable of the sower is the Lord's kind of midrash on that passage in Isaiah 55 that says that God's word shall not return to him void. The point is that, yes, it, it is not responded to successfully, in the long run, by a lot of people. But the fact that some will definitely respond, and will respond amazingly, the wonder of that should encourage us. That if you only bring one person to eternity in the course of your, your life of witness and, and preaching, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And all the, the failures and the disappointments, all the others have responded for a bit and then fell off, uh, that, that's okay. But those that, that did, wow, the wonder of that. My final point is, is this, that the Lord foresaw here that there would be different levels of response, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I think he foresaw the problem that we would have as the, the body of believers in him. And it's the problem that different people respond on different levels to his word, to the hope of the kingdom. Some respond more than three times as actively as others. There's a difference between 30-fold and 100-fold. And yet they have all responded. Now, it's very difficult to live with this in church life, ecclesial life, and so forth, uh, that for somebody just responds three times more zealously than the other. And often that person will find it very difficult to relate to the 30-fold person. If I see this in this way, and I give my life, and I give up my career, and my money, etc., well, what about you? And the 30-fold person will also feel difficult about the 100-fold person, because they'll probably think, no, 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 you're not a 100-fold person, you're just like me, but you're just up yourself, and you're just posing around, etc., Yet the Lord saw this, that there would be different levels of response. Just like there will be different levels of reward. Some guy made more money down the market with the Lord's money than, than the, the other guy. Uh, and so he gets more cities to reign over in God's kingdom. Okay. Uh, in one sense, salvation is a penny a day. 
actual salvation. The gift of eternity is not by works. But the nature of who we shall eternally be, it does, I think, differ. One star differs from another in glory. And so, don't let this discourage you. If you feel that there are others within the community who are not as they should be, who are not responding to God's word as you feel they should, or even as, let's put it this way, not responding as they should, as much as they should. Okay, 30, 60, 100. And you'd be pretty up yourself if you think that you're in the hundredfold category. Um, but maybe you are. Maybe you are. But all the same, just bear in mind that there can be people, even if you're in the hundredfold category, there can be people who are responding to God's truth and God's word not even three times as much as you do, a third or less as much as you do. And they're still going to be saved. So then the point is that the word of God... And that word, as I say, I don't think it's the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, including the Chronicles of Genealogies. The word of God, which is Jesus, basically. The message of the Son of God. The message of the Lord Jesus. This is capable of resisting and bringing forth fruit despite all uh, circumstances and situations around us that stifle us. The cares of this world, the deceit of wealth, as we see it embodied in the people around us who would tend to choke our response to Jesus, etc. The hardness of human hearts, the stony places like Peter, um, the, the seed by the wayside, with people treading us underfoot, despising us, mocking us, etc. All these things, all these things, we can overcome. We really can, because this is the power of understanding the word of Jesus. He, he talks about those who understand it and those who don't. Now, he's redefining their understanding. Don't forget he was talking in a Jewish milieu whereby the idea of spirituality was that you became a, a student of, of the law and you put every word uh, of the Old Testament under a microscope uh, until you felt you had properly understood a certain uh, passage, you read different rabbis and interpretations of that passage until you understood that and you put a little tick as it were by that verse, I understand that, I've done that, go on to the next one. I'll be honest, that's how I was brought up. Uh, it's the sort of background I came from. Uh, very into Bible study. And no one would say that, I hope it's saying that that's, that's wrong in itself. But the Lord is redefining understanding. Because he's saying that to understand the word is to bring forth fruit. And you know what the fruit of the spirit is? Love, joy, peace, etc. That that is the fruit. Understanding is bringing forth fruit. Now, he, he says uh, in the middle, in this little gap between the parable and the interpretation, he says about why people won't understand these parables. He says uh, in the... Fifteen, they have closed their eyes, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. So he's saying here that not understanding him is a conscious intellectual choice. That these people don't understand because they don't want to understand. Because they think that therefore they shall be uh, changed, converted. I used to think that, well, yeah, some people just don't understand the word of Jesus because, I, I don't know why, but I guess God doesn't let them. 
Where here, it seems to be saying that, or Jesus is saying, that if somebody hears the word, I'm not saying everyone hears the word, but those who do hear the word, those in whose heart the seed is planted, they don't understand, or if they don't understand, it's because they don't want to understand. And why don't they want to understand? Because the Lord is touching the deepest subconscious psychology of people's minds. They don't want to understand because then they might be converted and changed. So actually, refusal to understand is rooted very much in uh, a subconscious fear of change. That's why people don't get it. That's why people don't want it. It's not because God refuses to show them. He wants them. That's why he planted the seed in their heart. But they choose not to understand lest they be converted. So the Lord is very penetrating here, and he's, I think, explaining to the disciples the difficult question, why on earth doesn't Israel accept me as their Messiah? After they've heard the message from John the Baptist, and, and his point is, yeah, they had the word, and they don't understand, you know why? Because they don't want to. Because they subconsciously fear that they would have to convert, that they would change. The seed has landed in our hearts. There's not one of us who's watching this presentation or is here today in whose heart God's word of Jesus has not come. Let's face that. It is for us to understand it in the sense of responding to it, in the sense of bringing forth fruit and not allowing our background environment and all the people in our lives, even if they bear the name of Christ or not, uh, to discourage us from responding and being taken by that response to where God wants.